Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. My name is Jonathan, and I am the Promontory Campus Pastor. And uh, as you've just seen, we, we are starting off a brand new sermon series uh, here at Central. Um, but before we kind of get into that, have you ever been ripped off? Have you ever been scammed, anything like that? It seems like scams are a very, very common uh, place. We kind of come across them a decent amount. In fact, uh, here at our offices, we have one particular scam that keeps on targeting us. I get many, many emails from Pastor Matt, who would really love it if I could just, you know, buy him a few gift cards and send him the codes, right? Pastor Matt seems to always be in a meeting, and I shouldn't call him, and so I need to make sure I'm emailing, right? None of us have ever fallen for this, but we've had a good deal of fun kind of toying them along for, for some time. But I'll be honest, I, I have actually fallen for a scam. I, I hate to admit this, it's, it's not a, you know, a pleasant thing, but I, 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 was, I was young, I was, I was actually traveling in Europe with some friends. And we were going through one of these marketplaces, and this is just one of those wonderful places where people love to try and take advantage of you. And so as I'm walking through with my friends, a guy stops me and says, hey, hey can I talk to you? And as he's doing, as he's talking to me, just asking me, you know, basic kind of questions, where are you from, all that. He's weaving something in his hands. He's weaving together this little bracelet, and he says, can I see your wrist? I, I said, sure. And just, I mean, as soon as I reached out, voomph, he had that thing around my wrist, and he started actually weaving it together right there on my wrist. And so as he's continuing to talk to me, he is braiding this thing onto it. And so by the time he was finished, I now have this thing locked onto my wrist. He made it so that I couldn't actually even take it off. It was too tight to do that. And then he looked at me and said, well, well now you have to pay for that. Oh, and again, I was young. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I was trying to, you know, maybe negotiate. It was nice looking. You know, it was kind of cool that he had done that right there on the spot and, and all this kind of stuff. I... I paid him something like 30 to 40 euros, which is, which is a lot of money, all right? I was confused. It wasn't a great moment, all right? I've had better moments in my life. But the, the really sad part about that is that the next day when I was looking at this thing that was still on my wrist, I could already see it was starting to come apart. I mean, you know, shockingly, this wasn't high quality. And before we even made it back from our trip, the thing had already, you know, frayed apart and I had thrown it in the garbage because it was useless. All right? Yes, I got taken advantage of. But, but the thing that really just kind of annoyed me so much, you know, I wouldn't have minded paying for something that, that actually lived up to it, something that was worth it, right? And, and here is, is the great problem with all the, the scams and, and, and getting ripped off. You always come away and you think, oh, I, it's not actually worth what I paid, right? The cost was too high for what I received, right? No one likes to feel like that, to feel like they've been tricked. We want to know when we go into it, when we start talking about something, what is it going to actually cost me, right? Get rid of all the, the hidden fees and all the other stuff that, that companies will sometimes try and put in. Tell me what it's going to cost and then tell me what I'm going to get, and so this morning, as we're looking at this passage in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to do really the exact opposite of a scam. He's going to tell us with, with blunt clarity what exactly it will cost to follow him. And, and in, in fact, also what we are going to gain. 
And so this morning, we're, we're starting this new series called The Road to the Cross. What we're doing is we're, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. As we, as we come towards Easter, we're going to walk with Jesus as he goes to uh, Jerusalem, ultimately to hang on the cross. And so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to open uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse uh, 51. And that might seem like a bit of an odd place to start off a series. Why are we starting right at the end of a a fairly random chapter in the book of Luke? Well, the reason is because this is a, a pivotal moment in the Gospels. This is a pivotal moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. This is really where everything begins to now shift and change. And in Jesus makes a decision. He makes a decision to now move directly towards the cross. And as he does this, what we're going to see is that we're going to see what does it mean to actually follow him? What does it mean to follow Jesus as he's walking to the cross? He's going to make the cost very clear, but also the gain and the reward. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see, first of all, Jesus' determination to do God's will. We're going to see that we are called to be zealous for God's glory and to be ready for sacrifice, right? This is no bait and switch. Jesus is going to tell us straight up, what does it take? Determination, zeal, and sacrifice. And Jesus is not just simply going to tell us these things. Actually, he's going to do it. He's going to walk this road ahead of us and then call us to follow after him. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this passage, make sure we understand it, and we're going to actually see how does Jesus, how does following Jesus actually look in our lives. So, First thing we're going to see really here is his determination to do God's will. If you have your Bibles open, look back at verse chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 51 with me. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, at the outset, that seems like a pretty boring sentence, Right? <laughs> That seems like, all right, Jesus made travel plans. He was traveling around all the time. Okay, now he's going to travel to Jerusalem, and, and, and that's part of it. But, but if you had, I know we were jumping in the middle, but if you had been following the story all the way through to this point, you'd recognize how massively significant this moment is. Because Jesus has been preparing his disciples for a little while now about what's going to happen when he gets there. In fact, you can just look a little bit back in in, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Jesus says this, speaking to his disciples, and he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus has already told him or told his disciples what's going to happen to him. He's going to be rejected by the elders, the scribes, and the chief priests. Well, where are they? Jerusalem. And so when Jesus makes this declaration, he is going to go to Jerusalem, all of his disciples should have recognized exactly what that meant. Jesus is heading towards the place where he will be put to death. And like I said, this is one of these monumental shifts in the ministry of Jesus. If you're, if you're familiar with what Jesus has done, right? Jesus has often been doing miracles. He's been teaching people. But up until this point, he has often ended those miracles by saying something like, now don't tell anyone. 
He charged them to tell, you know, no one what he had done. And we always kind of scratch our heads and we think, you know, why? Jesus, isn't the whole point that people would know who you are? Isn't that, isn't that why you came? And in fact, actually, Jesus answers that question. He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. It's not the, the moment for him to have this more, even more sort of public ministry on display. But now that time has come. This is the time when Jesus' ministry now begins to go extremely wide open. In fact, Jesus will now begin to challenge outright the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He's going to confront them. He is going to call them to task. Jesus is heading to the cross. Verse 51 says, the days drew near for him to be taken up. I think, I think Luke is playing with words here a little bit. See, whenever you went to Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem. That was just the language of the day because Jerusalem was on a higher, you know, mountain. We, we wouldn't call it a mountain. It's a very small hill, right? But you go up to Jerusalem to the temple. And so Luke is using that as, as Jesus is going to go up to Jerusalem. But, but more than that, he's going to be lifted up. Jesus is going to be lifted up there on the cross, and eventually he's going to be taken up in the ascension, right? Luke is kind of pointing us about what is yet to come in the life of Jesus. He's going to be hung on a cross and die. But I think what, what's so amazing about this passage, Jesus knows that, and he's still going. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem, and he is still going. See, I don't know about you, but, but if I know something is going to hurt me, I avoid it. I do whatever it takes to, to not be hurt, to, to go around that, to find something else. I, I avoid getting myself hurt, and yet Jesus here is fixed and determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? because he is determined to do God's will. This is exactly why he was sent here, and this is his goal. And in fact, Jesus will not be distracted from that. See, if you remember the story when, when Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be put to death, actually, Peter gets mad at Jesus. Peter, Peter actually tries to rebuke Jesus. Uh, Matthew records the story for us. Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I think of all the things that Jesus has ever said to his disciples, this would have been one of the most shocking Right? What is Peter wanting for Jesus? Peter is wanting Jesus not to be killed, not to be executed. Is that such a horrible thing? Isn't that exactly what you'd want for a friend, let alone a, a mentor and a master? I mean, surely that's what you should want. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are playing the role of Satan. Jesus will not be sidetracked from doing the will of God. You want to know what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means we take on this kind of determination. We are determined to do God's will in our lives. No matter what God is calling us to do, we are unyielding in our dedication to our heavenly Father. 
And so as Jesus is now setting his face towards Jerusalem, this is where he is going to go. Even to the cross, we have to ask the question, okay, but, but how do then we do that? I mean, is that what we're called to do? Are we called to then go and say, all right, well, I guess I need to go to Jerusalem. If I'm going to follow Jesus, this is what I should do. No. But then what do we do? What exactly should we be determined to do? Well, I, I think it's actually the same thing Jesus is determined to do, and that is show mercy. Or if I can put it another way, he is zealous for God's glory. See, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, had certainly picked up on, on his dedication, on his zeal, but they didn't know exactly what to do with it yet. Look back at our text, verse 52. It says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because he had set his face towards Jerusalem. All right, a little bit of context here. Samaritans um, uh, lived in an area right sort of in the middle of, of, of Israel. So Jesus is up here in the north in Galilee, and he wants to go down to Jerusalem. I say down, he would say up to Jerusalem. And the shortest way is to go straight south through Samaria. But the Samaritans did not like the Jewish people. They had rivalry and animosity that goes back generations and generations. In fact, the Samaritans would very much stop Jewish people from going through their land if they were going to Jerusalem especially. Right? They didn't believe you should be worshiping in Jerusalem. And so they, they tried to stop them as much as they could. In fact, most of the time, Jewish travelers wouldn't have even considered going through Samaria. They would have avoided it at all cost. And I think here, even as, as Jesus begins this journey, we see a little bit, a hint of what he is ultimately going to be doing. Jesus intends to go into Samaria as he heads to the cross. Why? Because Jesus is not simply going to the cross for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. Jesus is going to show the glory of God for the whole world, but his disciples radically misunderstand what is happening here. Right? James and John enter into the picture with, with gusto. All right? Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, you have to give them points for, for loyalty, but they have missed the mark by about a thousand miles, right? They, they completely misunderstand what was going on. Now, James and, and John, they, they were two brothers. They had a nickname. They were the Sons of Thunder, right? Because, man, when they came in, they're just crashing into the story, right? They, they are just, you know, trying to do something. And so maybe this kind of suggestion wasn't out of place for them, right? But they, they, they love Jesus, and, and, and Jesus has been insulted, and so they want to avenge Jesus, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to stand on his side. Don't you know who this is? How can you possibly be so unwelcoming? Now you'll get what's coming to you. Let's rain down fire. Now, before we roast these guys for what they've just done, and, and we will, all right? Hadn't we just been talking about how determined Jesus was? How, how resolute he was? How, how much zeal and, and passion he had? In fact, if you're, if you're familiar with Jesus' ministry, you'll know John chapter 2 begins with, with Jesus now clearing out the temple, 
Right? John chapter 2 says, and making a whip of cords, he, Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? We often think of Jesus meek and mild, but kind of forget that on the table is Jesus making a whip and driving out people out of the temple. So is it so out of place for, for his disciples to think to himself, you know, Jesus has been insulted. All right, let's, let's bring down fire upon them. Certainly Jesus had a lot of zeal in this. There was a lot of passion that Jesus had, but, but here is what they forgot. They forgot that really important qualifier in what I just read. What was Jesus zealous for? Well, the temple, the place where God was to be worshipped and praised, Jesus is zealous for the glory of God. And here is where the disciples made their mistake. James and John, they had zeal. They had it in abundance. They were passionate. They were fiery. But they were zealous about all the wrong things. John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, but, but really they needed to hear John 3.17. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to rain down fire. He came to save. The mission of Jesus was not about bringing punishment or judgment. It was about bringing salvation to people. In fact, that's why he's going to Jerusalem. That's why he's going to the cross. He's going there for the salvation of people who have rejected him. That is the mission of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross, and what does he do? He doesn't bring judgment. He actually takes the judgment on himself. The whole point of what he is about to do here is not to bring judgment, but to actually receive it. The punishment for our sins would not fall on us, but in fact it would fall on Jesus so that anyone who trusts in him would be saved. That's what Jesus had been coming to do. That's why he had his eyes set and fixed on Jerusalem, on the cross. And so as Jesus is making this determination, starting this journey, and his disciples then ask, are you going to bring down judgment? You can imagine Jesus just looking over at them. And what do we get? Verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. In a similar way, I'm sure, to, to, to how uh, Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus rebukes James and John for their misunderstanding of what he was doing. Jesus came to bring mercy, grace, and forgiveness, and they're asking for judgment? Not at all. See, James and John had plenty of zeal, plenty of passion, but it was all pointed in the wrong direction. And so here's the truth we really need to understand. Not everything that we care about is what Jesus cares about. 
Not everything that makes us angry is what Jesus makes Jesus angry. In fact, the call, if we are to be followers of Jesus, is to align our hearts, our passion, our zeal with his. We are called to be zealous, passionate, to work hard, to be dedicated, that God's glory would be shown in mercy. So the question we need to ask is, are we actually passionate about that? Are we passionate about grace? Are we passionate about mercy, about forgiveness? Are we passionate about those who don't know Jesus yet? See, I think one of the things that that worries me so much is if I can even criticize us as, as Christians broadly, is I think sometimes we've prayed too often for judgment and not nearly enough for mercy. I think we resemble James and John a little bit more than we would like sometimes. We're passionate, yes, but are we passionate about the gospel? Is that what drives us? Is that what calls us? Is that what we wake up and want to do to share more about who God is and the mercy and the forgiveness that he has shown to us? Our greatest desire is not that people would face judgment. Our greatest desire is that they would receive mercy. We are not called to condemn, but to save. If we want to follow Jesus, it means aligning our passions, our desires on what Jesus has set himself to do. Jesus fixes his eyes on the cross, on the means by which God's mercy and glory would be displayed. Is that where our eyes are fixed? Are we sharing our faith? Look, we're coming through the season of Lent. We're coming up to Easter. We've got just over a month. Who can you be sharing the gospel with? What, what neighbor, coworker, uh, friend has God placed in your life? Who can you be inviting to Easter service so that, that we actually can begin to, to work? Do we care about those who don't know him yet? Or are we passionate about all the wrong things? Here's my encouragement for all of us who say, I I think my heart isn't always there. It's not always there. Well, neither was James and John's. But the beautiful thing is that's not the end of their story. In fact, James and John, John especially ends up back in Samaria. You might know this from the book of Acts. In a beautiful twist of God's sovereignty, he does go to Samaria and he does pray that God would bring fire down on them, but not in judgment. He prays that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Peter and John go and they have the opportunity to actually preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus and watch as the Holy Spirit descends on them like tongues of fire. Here's my encouragement for everyone whose heart is not perfectly aligned to Jesus. Would you come and pray and repent of our sins and turn to Jesus once more? Say, Lord, change my heart that I would desire to share your word more and more. God is not finished with us. Jesus rebukes his disciples, but he does not discard them. He came to bring salvation He came to show us God's mercy for the lost and even for those who follow him imperfectly. And as disciples, we are called to carry that on. None of us here are perfect, but we pray, Lord, transform my heart more and more that I might follow after you. 
Let us be zealous for God's glory displayed in mercy. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, but, but there's still that question I want us to ask, and that is the question of cost. What does it actually cost for us to follow after Jesus? If we are determined to do, follow God's will, if we are zealous for his glory, it means we must be ready to sacrifice. And I think I should probably really add here, self-sacrifice. We're called to lay down our lives as Jesus lays down his and really the final section we're going to look at here this morning is Jesus responding to three big excuses people make for why they can't really follow after him, right? Why, why can I not really follow after Jesus? Well, they've got a lot of, of ways to do this. Verse 57, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? Jesus is going to make the cost of what it means to follow after him very clear. But see here, what I find so surprising as we read through this passage is that really none of these excuses are ridiculous. Right? None of them are, 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 are you know, outside of the bounds of what we would expect, even just in normal life. No one says, well, I can't follow you, Jesus, because I've got you know, a bunch of mistresses or I'm stealing from people. Like, no, 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 none of the big stuff. This is all, I mean, reasonable. Right? Jesus, right, this man comes up and says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I mean, that sounds exactly like what we should be saying to Jesus, is it not? And Jesus responds, all right, well, do you know what that means? It means you're not going to have a home. You're going to have to give up the comfort of having a place to say some of the basic comforts and luxuries that you might expect, even, even what you might call basic living arrangements. Those also might be taken away. See, that seems like a pretty basic request to, to have a place to sleep. Continue on with me, verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Again, this, that seems pretty reasonable to me. If your father has just died, burying him seems like a good thing to do, right? Now, I know some commentators have, have speculated that, that maybe this guy's dad wasn't even dead yet, right? He's trying to wiggle out of it, like, well, I'm going to bury my dad. You know, he's in his 50s and he's in good health. Like, no, 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 no. Text doesn't say that. He just simply says, let me bury my father, in fact, that, that seems like something you should do, even a scriptural thing that you should do, honor your father and mother. Certainly Jesus can't have a problem with that, can he? Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That seems harsh, doesn't it? That, that, that seems over the top of, of what Jesus is asking for. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Again, really reasonable. Even this time has, has scriptural support. If, you're, if you know the story of Elijah and Elisha, when Elijah the prophet calls Elisha to follow him, Elisha says, all right, hold on, I just gotta go, I'm going to go say goodbye to my parents at home and then I'm going to follow you. It's essentially exactly what this guy says. Jesus can't have a problem with that, can he? Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Why is Jesus not accepting normal circumstances of life? 
surely saying goodbye, despite the fact that, yes, this is an ancient culture, and yeah, it probably took longer than just a quick, you know, goodbye. None of these things seem unreasonable to me. Knowing where you're going to live, honoring your parents, basic, you know, polite things to do, like say goodbye. Come on, Jesus, be reasonable. But I think that's exactly the point we're supposed to come to. The commitment to follow Jesus actually overrules everything. To follow Jesus means that he is actually greater than your home. He's greater than your family, even your very life. Do you want to know what it's going to cost you to follow Jesus? The answer is everything. It's going to cost you everything that you have. It is greater than even the relationship you have with your parents or your children. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes this one real clear. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The commitment to follow Jesus is greater than family, even greater than life itself. Jesus is not pulling his punches. He's going to be very bluntly clear about what this will cost. Or let me put it this way. Jesus does not want to be part of your life. Jesus does not want to be part of your life. In fact, to follow Jesus means he has every part of our life. Everything we have is in service to him. In fact, the whole point that Jesus is getting us to is that we don't add Jesus into our life. In fact, we hand over our life to him. Jesus overrules all things. Now, let me be clear here. That doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, that means you get to badmouth your, your family or you don't have to take care of other people. No, that's, that's not the point. In fact, the Bible actually calls us, Jesus calls us to take care of our families and and, and to make sure we're providing for them. That's good and right, but we have to understand that that command comes under the command of Jesus. Why do we take care of our families? Because Jesus has called us to do so. We don't take care of our families and then follow Jesus. We take care of our families because Jesus has called us to do that. The whole point of what Jesus is getting to is that actually he must come first in our life. He is the one who is going to come first. And so to sacrifice for him actually means we're going to have to be giving up a lot. I know sometimes it's hard to, to put this into perspective, so let me put it this way. We're called to give up home. We're called to give up family. called to give up our very lives. What does that mean practically? It might mean you have to leave your home. I don't mean walk out the front door, though I suppose that's true. I mean, you might have to actually move. God might call you to to go across the world and to share and proclaim the kingdom of God. Maybe that is exactly what you're going to have to give up, and God is going to call you to actually leave and spend the next 10, 20, 30 years in a different country where you are not at home. Calls us to give up family. 
I'm not saying that we need to stop talking to our families, but the commitment to follow Jesus may actually cause strains in the relationships of our family. I'm well aware that is a sacrifice many of you have already been paying. To actually say, my commitment to Jesus is greater than even my family, my parents, is a hard sacrifice to make. Jesus says we are ready to give up our lives. We may go into a country where it is still illegal to talk about Jesus, to to share your faith. That may be a price you are called to give. You may be called to give up your friendships. You may be called to give up your work. You may be called to give up your reputation because you are going to be faithful to Jesus first. Let me not beat around the bush, the cost is high. Jesus says just a few verses earlier, Luke 9, he says to all, to everyone who's listening, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is a dedication to self-sacrifice on behalf of God's glory. But in there contains good news. In there contains good news. It is the radical sacrifice to follow Jesus is outweighed with the immeasurable gain that is received. Jesus asks the question, what good is it if you gain everything in the world, if you have all the wealth of of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, if you have achieved everything you want to achieve, but at the end of your life, you come before God and you are judged for your sin. You have gained nothing. It is useless and worthless if that is all that you have. On the flip side, the immeasurable gain of peace with God, of eternal life with him, of forgiveness of our sins is worth everything that we could ever give up. Our sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ and we are made right with God. We will experience for all of eternity the love and the joy and the goodness of our God stretching on and never stopping. What could we possibly give up that would top that? The cost to be a follower of Jesus is everything in life, but the gain is still immeasurably more. To those who follow Jesus, we are called to dedicate ourselves to doing God's will, to be zealous for his glory and ready to sacrifice everything. To proclaim the good news of what he has done. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus and this is what Jesus has done for us. He laid down his life so that we might be saved. Hear me, this is no sleazy sales pitch. There's no hidden costs. To follow Jesus means it's going to cost everything. Jesus requires your dedication to do God's will, your, your passion to conform yourself more and more to share his mercy, to lay down your life so that others might hear the gospel, 
But the good news is that what we gain is so much greater than all of that. What is promised in Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins. That we have peace with God, security in his grace and his mercy. That we know and experience the fullness of who God is in the abundance of love and joy, fellowship and community, purpose, contentment, assurance, rest and everlasting life. What are we giving up that is close to those things? As Jim Elliot so famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so the final question I have is, is simple. Will you follow Jesus? Is it your commitment to follow him like this? To trust in him and his death and resurrection as the payment for your sins? That you can be forgiven by God. This is what it looks like to follow him. If you want to talk more about this, I'd love to talk with you. Talk with, come talk with me, with Pastor Ron, with someone you know here. There's no scam in the Christian life. We're not trying to hide what it costs, nor what we gain. Because what we gain is far superior, infinitely worthy than all that we have to give. We follow Jesus with determination, zeal, and sacrifice because in him is life in abundance. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the example that he has given for us of what it looks like to be fixed and determined, focused and zealous on your glory, to do your will. Father, I pray, would you work that in our hearts? Would you be transforming us so that we would long for the things that you long for, that we would love to share more of your mercy and your grace each and every day? And Lord, I, I pray, Lord, make us ready for the sacrifices when they come. Father, it is not that we are sacrificing anything, but that we are giving it back. Lord, all that we have is a gift from your hand, and so, Father, we thank you for it. And, Lord, I, I pray that we would trust in the immensity, the far greater gain that is waiting for us. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.